when we attempt to use force, political influence, power, consequences, manipulation, when we use these kinds of things to achieve what we think are godly ends, we are taking on the priestly and kingly anointing for ourselves, and we become anti-Christ. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where we are seeking to recover from bad ideas about God and the Christian faith and recover the true faith. We have something different for you this week. This is going to be uh, a. Uh, this is going to be not a conversation, but a delivery of a redelivery of Nathan's sermon that he preached this past weekend, and uh, we thought it would be relevant to our our podcast because he touches on the important topic of Christian nationalism. We know that's something people are uh, interested in, um, supportive of, or um, vehemently opposed to. So Nathan's going to uh, address that for us this week. Thanks, everyone. We hope you enjoy. If you have questions, email them to discussion at faithrecoverypodcast.com. So the other day we were looking at a friend's Facebook page, and it seems like they are going to a pretty dynamic church. And uh, we were just looking at the Facebook page for that church, and I noticed that the logo had a uh, American flag on one side and a Christian flag on the other, kind of back-to-back, and really got me thinking, you know, do those two images really belong in the same frame? Is this something that um, is fitting? Um, and and it made me wonder why someone would put those images in the same frame. And I think that it has to do with this uh, thing that's called Christian nationalism. Uh, maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. It seems like when it comes up, it's usually in a negative context and almost nearly synonymous with white supremacy or racism. Uh, in other cases, uh, there are people who are very proud of um, that title, and they would say, yeah, I'm definitely a, a Christian nationalist. Um, but whatever your understanding of it is, whatever your exposure, whatever your identification, it's going to be an important um, phrase to understand and to come to grips with, and um, it seems like a recent phrase, a recent phenomenon. Uh, the idea of it probably is rooted in the religious right, uh, but the maybe one of the major proponents um, and progenitors of this movement is an organization called the Family Research Council, um, and so I thought I would just share a little promotional video from them so they can tell you what they are about. At Family Research Council, we have that firm foundation and you can find us standing. We stand for the value of all human life. We stand for the right of families to flourish. And every day we stand for your freedom to believe and to live out those beliefs both at home and abroad. We work with government officials, educating them on the issues from a biblical worldview. And when necessary, we hold them accountable. We equip Christians across America to be informed and to take action in their communities. I don't know what you think about that. Uh, maybe you think it's a positive thing. Maybe you think it's a negative. Maybe you're right uh, on either side. I don't have the final answer, but I do think that the Bible comments on Christian nationalism. Um, it comments on this idea of um, a religion that is tied to a national identity. 
And as we get in this series in John to John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42, um, John and Jesus through John will take up this, um, this theme or this concept of a nationalized religion or religion and nation together. Um, and the big idea for this message is, uh, and I like to, with all of my messages that I present, uh, especially on Sunday mornings, I'd like to I have just a theme statement that I then take apart. And so um, for this message, the, uh, the theme statement for John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42 is, people protect their perimeter, but God's sheep exit earthly enclosures into fruitful fellowship. So yeah, I, I alliterate. I'm a preacher. I don't apologize for that. But uh, I'm going to take apart this sentence, uh, a phrase at a time, and explore it in light of John chapter 22 through 42. So the first um, major concept that we're going to talk about is that people tend to, people protect their Perimeter, and so when we get to John chapter twenty-two, or chapter ten, verse twenty-two, and the first sentence in that verse, John ten twenty-two a, it says, "Then came the festival of dedication in Jerusalem." Um, throughout the book of John, John structures his narrative around the feasts. Uh, we see in various places where Jesus has gone to the feast of the Passover. John chapter 5, he goes to some unnamed feast. John chapter 7 through 10, 22, all happens um, with the backdrop, against the backdrop of the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. And so the Feast of Booths is a fall feast, and uh, now Jesus is at this uh, Feast of Dedication. Uh, you might not know what that is, but uh, you might know it by its common name, Hanukkah. Uh, and so this is the, the festival that has to do with an era in Jewish history, a recent relative to the other feasts um, episode, where this man named Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, who was the leader of the Seleucid Empire, which uh, had come at, after uh, Alexander the Great had had done all of his conquest, and he'd passed on, and he and his uh, empire was uh, distributed among four different generals. And Antiochus was one of the of the leaders of this um, of this one fourth of the Greek Empire, uh, the Seleucids, and he came into Jerusalem, and not only did he want to conquer people's um, bodies, but he wanted to conquer their hearts and minds and souls. He really wanted to be deified. His uh, moniker that he went by was Epiphanes, so uh, that meant like the appearance of a god, and so when Antiochus thought it, you know, when someone sees him, that he is an avatar for a god, that he's the appearance of a god. Um, but the Jews didn't much care for that. They didn't care for that, um, that kind of ambition that he had, and they didn't care for his title. Um, they instead called him Epimenes, which means madman. Um, and, and he seems to have fulfilled that role maybe more than the Epiphanes title. Uh, by going into the temple in Jerusalem and setting up an image of himself there. And then, uh, just for good measure, he sacrificed pigs on the altar there. So, just trying to, trying to make a mess, trying to cause problems, and he defiled the Jewish 
temple, the Jewish altar. That was too much for uh, a family who came to be known as the Maccabees. Judas uh, Maccabee uh, came in. Maccabee means a hammer. So these guys came and they, they're going to drop the hammer, right? And uh, they finally conquered uh, Antiochus or at least defeated him in that region, ran him out of there and uh, rededicated the temple toward uh, kosher worship of Yahweh. So this became a celebratory feast, but it's somewhat different from the ones that we see in the Bible because it wasn't given by Moses, it was given much later, and uh, it had less to do with Israel's relationship with God and more to do with their national identity and their sovereignty as a nation. Um, and so here they are observing this feast in John, 20, uh, John 10, 22. And, and what's particularly ironic about this mention from John is that um, that it was winter. He says uh, in the rest of John 10, 22, he says, uh, then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. Now, we know that Hanukkah is in the winter, but so did everybody else. Uh, why did John mention that it was winter? I think that there is more of a symbolic meaning here, and that is that the season of the second temple was winding to a close, that it was late December in the year. If, if we think of the uh, duration of the second temple as a year, then uh, we are in late December and uh, that time is coming to a close because as we know, looking back in history, that in 70 AD, the Romans did come. Um, they did execute a successful siege and uh, not only defiled the temple, but actually dismantled it and hauled all of its articles away. So uh, there's this this tension that we see where Israel is celebrating this, this festival of their independence uh, and their religious identity mixed in with that, but it is right on the very twilight of their existence in that form of that temple cult. And so it is winter in terms of the uh, second temple year. And as we read on in John 20, uh, 10, 23 through 24, it says, And Jesus was walking in the, temp in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. And, and so he's walking in this porch area that is associated with King Solomon, with the glory of Israel. And here's this guy who's been performing miracles. And we know there's all these rumblings about who he might be, right? And so the Jews see him there and it says the jews who were there gathered around him saying how long will you keep us in suspense literally here he's they're saying how long will you keep our souls in the air if you are messiah tell us plainly so here are some people that are they're very concerned about their national identity and here they are there's a nationalistic fervor i think that's that's happening, if you can imagine, just the focus on the United States that comes at the 4th of July and our national identity. So uh, during Hanukkah, as they're in the temple, they've got their capital and uh, there's an occupying army in their streets and they're, th they're saying, hey, if you are inciting these messianic inclinations in the Jewish people, you'd better be ready to back it up. You better stand up and, and start calling forth your army because uh, the Romans are only going to tolerate these kind of rumors and rumblings for so long that we are, we're hanging out there. Our lives are in the balance and you'd better 
you know, for want of a better phrase, poop or get off the pot, right? Fish or cut bait, let's get this done. Now, what's interesting about the wording here is it says that the Jews surrounded him, that they, uh, that they besieged him is one uh, use of the verb. It's the same one that's used in uh, Luke 21, 20, where, where Jesus predicts, he says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, besieged by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. And so <clears throat> here are these people who are celebrating freedom from an oppressive force and a violent entity, um, and they're wanting final and ultimate freedom from that kind of a thing. But they're using the exact same methods to accomplish this freedom. So just as they resented Antiochus for besieging them during his reign, and they are going to encounter Rome, besieging them and ultimately defeating them through that siege. Now they are besieging Jesus, that the violence that they'd suffered, they're, they're also perpetrators of. Uh, you know, you don't have to actually have weapons in hand to perpetrate violence. All you have to do is impose your will on another person through a threat of some sort of reprisal. Even if you surround him and say, hey, we're going to stay here all day until you tell us you're giving an or else to somebody else. You are compelling a, a co compliance from them. And that's a sort of a violence. And as we look to those kinds of those pressure tactics, we see that those things easily make us the perpetrators that we resent. And, and so here they are. They're besieging Jesus and they're requiring something from him. It's very much like their approach, uh, the approach of the Galileans in John chapter 6, uh, verse uh, 14 through 15. He, he says, After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Um, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus is already king, but the matter is that it's by force and that that is not how the kingdom of God is supposed to work here in this time, in this place where we are. In Matthew eleven twelve, 12, Jesus bemoans this idea. He says, For, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. Once, when it's in arm's length, people are trying to take hold of it. They want to um, achieve their own ends. They see an opportunity to reach their goals through perhaps somebody who has this kind of agency and power to get things done. And we will turn our leader into our puppet if that suits our agenda. Uh, and we become the very perpetrators that we hate and that we hope to eliminate from the world. So that's a major concern in, in approach. And it's something that Jesus is not a part of, uh, that we protect our identity as a group. People protect their perimeter. That what oftentimes gets labeled as religious zeal is nothing more than just fleshly tribalism in a religious garb. And so that's what's happening here in John chapter 10, verses 23 and 24. And so Jesus turns to them and, and you know they say, hey, are you going to do it or not? Uh, and, and he says, look, I, I told you that I'm the Messiah, but you didn't believe me. Uh, the works that I do in my father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. 
So when did Jesus tell them? Well, if you look back in John 5, uh, he told them through Scripture. And that these works come as, as this second witness to what Scripture has already said about him. Well, what did Scripture say about Messiah? Uh, scripture said this in Ezekiel 34, 17. He says, As for you, my flock, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another and between rams and goats. You see, this idea of tribalism, it suggests that if you're in the right group, you must be one of the good people, right? And And... That was what people were thinking back in Ezekiel's day. It's what they thought in Jeremiah's day. Uh, it's what they've thought throughout time that if I identify with this label, with this location, with this particular um, belief set or position, that I'm one of the good people or that I'm on the right side of history. And this, yeah, this message in Ezekiel 34 is saying, look, this isn't about your group God is going to take his flock, but then he's going to split it up and he's going to look at individual sheep. He's going to judge between the sheep. And, and so any approach that we have toward God that is a part of, I, you know, here's, here's what's ironic about it is, is that another phrase that goes along with this idea of Christian nationalism is identity politics, right? So we, we're identifying in a way, and because we identify in a way, we're going to vote a certain way. Or we're going to participate in a particular uh, political action, lobbying, protesting, demonstrating, these kinds of things that, that say, this is who I am, this is what I'm a part of. And, and God is saying, look, I'm not going to lead like that. I'm going to look at you as an individual. I'm going to look at my sheep as individuals, and then I'll produce a flock from a bunch of devoted individuals. Uh, reading on in Ezekiel 34, 22 through 24, he says, I will save my flock. So his flock is needs to be saved from the larger flock. So that there is a there's a group that that identifies as his, but within that group are the actual sheep who are his. And he's saying, I'm gonna save them, I'm gonna pull them out, and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. So that is, you know, God is saying, I'm going to shepherd my flock and David's going to shepherd my flock. Well, how is both God and David going to shepherd the flock? Well, because the son of David is also the son of God. And he has come to shepherd the flock, but on a one-on-one -on -one basis that he's going to call them forth from among those who would identify with him, but who don't belong to him. He goes on in Ezekiel 34 to say, I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. You know, um, I've got this picture up uh, of a bunch of guys standing there, and um, their shirts say, In God we trump. Look, I'm going to be frank. I voted for Trump in 2020, um, but I didn't vote for him as Messiah. <laughs> um, uh, and so I, I think that there's a real problem when we begin to uh, assume that those who believe in God uh, take a political position, that this idea, the reason it's, it's popular is because it awakens this tribal instinct. And this tribal instinct is not the gospel. It is really, as we will see, the antithesis of the gospel. I do not want to be associated 
with those who would presume that to have a particular political affiliation means that you have God's endorsement. That is uh, erroneous. I, I think it's antithetical to the gospel and the message of the New Testament. And so uh, it is a, a human, it is a fleshly approach, even though it wears a religious garb, uh, which is why we see a lot of um, paradoxical behaviors as people who uh, purport to be a part of this righteous cause, uh, their personal lives seem to um, lay the lie toward that. So people protect their perimeter. The next major phrase or, or clause, I guess, here is that, but God's sheep exit earthly enclosures, that we don't need these kinds of institutional props to identify who we are in him, that Jesus actually leads us not by uh, some sort of structures, not by some sort of uh, organization or rallying cry, but by one force, and that is his voice. In John chapter 10, 27, he says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. And that's how it works, period. If the sheep are not responding if, to the voice of the shepherd, if, if someone is being motivated and moved by a rallying cry or by some sort of a, of a deficiency that's being uh, declared out there, if we're all organizing around a position or a cause that isn't just the voice of Jesus, then are we his sheep? Um, and in Israel, there were many who were Jews who were not Israel. And John seems to make that distinction in his gospel. And Psalm 95, 6 through 10, this very pastoral kind of a psalm, he says, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. So in that instance, there was this uh, conspiracy that there... that that really that was a day when Israel began to rely on strength in numbers. And they said, you know, this doesn't make sense to us. And the majority of us, the 10 spies, are saying, hey, this, this is not the right way to go. Two spies said, yeah, we can. And so once the people start getting strength in numbers, they start depending on a rallying cry. They stop listening to God. And, and they begin to turn on him. And they ignore his voice. And he says, for 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. You see, that voice of Jesus calls the sheep out, as we saw in previous uh, verses of John chapter 10, that, that they're called out by him out of this enclosure, out of this identity, into a personal connection with the shepherd based on hearing his voice. And so he says, I give them eternal life. And I want to focus on that word eternal. I think Jesus is, is telling us the kind of life that resides within his sheep, and that is the eternal kind. He is the, is the shepherd of 
the eternal sheep. Here's what all of these nationalistic causes have in common. They are rooted in fear. They're rooted in a a fear that somehow our liberties will be curtailed or that somebody will get an upper hand or that somebody will do something to somebody else. And um, we begin to move in that. But Jesus is saying, look, here's what I offer you, eternal life, not temporal life. And, And that's what Christian nationalism offers. It's why it's popular, because given the choice, people want the temporal life over the eternal life. But Jesus offers us eternal life. The reason that God's sheep can exit earthly enclosures is because they know they are safe under his care. That though they die, yet they will live. And that that is the operating assumption of his sheep. And so, and and he says, and they shall never perish. So how could anybody be moved by a fear message if you say, I can't die. And that's what Jesus says his sheep ought to be able to say. No one will snatch them out of my hand. You know, a a lot of the messages that we hear are, you know, what's being lost or that we've got to return to to the right ways. And this is alarmist concern that if this trend continues, then X, Y, and Z is going to happen and we need to organize and we need to activate. um, And that seems to be antithetical to what Jesus is saying. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hands. Is there some sort of a risk out there? Is there some sort of a fear that we need to respond to if what Jesus said is true? In John or in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 6, um, Isaiah is saying, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, who's in whose hand is the club of my wrath. You know, we, we look at particular political parties uh, or a position or a group of people and we say, well, those people are, are evil and we need to stop them. Well, I think if, if we come to believe that, then we have missed the, the message of Scripture, at least part of it. Notice here, God is speaking judgment on Assyrians. He's also calling them the tool in his hand. Can God use the Democratic Party? Can God use all of these things that are happening for his purposes? We certainly can. He is sovereign. He is the king. He says, I send him against a godless, I send him, the Assyrian, against a godless nation. You want to know who that was? Israel, right? I dispatch him against a people who are who anger me to seize, loot, and snatch plunder. Now Jesus is saying, Look, in in my kingdom. There will be no conquering army because my sheep cannot be conquered. They cannot be besieged. They cannot be plundered because they are eternal. They are immortal. They cannot perish. And so they will not suffer the violence of an invading army, a besieging army. They are simply held together by the shepherd and no one can snatch them out of the shepherd's hands. And so... In John chapter 10, verses 30 through 33, he says, I and the Father are one. Now, this is where um, there gets to be a real problem because Jesus is now touching on um, their their creed that for the Jew, the, the 
watershed, the difference between Jew and Gentile was, was this affirmation. God is one. And now Jesus says, I and the Father, we're both one. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For, for which of these do you stone me? And so these people are resorting to violence, but Jesus is not. And Jesus is unafraid. Jesus retaliates, if you will. Jesus is protected from this besieging army and the, um, the, catap- the, the projectiles that they would catapult at him. He is protected from that by his good works. And he's showing the church how to, to engage in warfare as his kingdom. And that is by persistently performing good works in his name. Peter says, who will harm you if you're zealous for good works? But even if they do, you can rejoice in that. And so Jesus being our shepherd going ahead of us, facing mortal danger, says, which of my good works are you stoning me for? They say, we are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God or you would make yourself God. Well, nobody can make themselves God and God doesn't need to be defended by us, does he? Um, And so that is Jesus response this is the threat is that they that he has said i and the father are one and now he has threatened their their identity their religious identity their national identity by taking this watershed affirmation and applying it to himself and yet he's not just coming up with this you know deuteronomy 6 4 said the lord your god lord is one they focused on that but in zechariah 14 8 through 9 It says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord um, will, well, in Zechariah 14, 8, he says, on that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem. You see, what what they had been doing, and and this is a theme earlier in John, where these waters are being retained within the walls, um, that just like Jeremiah had said, that they rejected the living waters, these flowing waters, and that they've dug for themselves cisterns. And that's this kind of national identity, this, this need to draw a line and say, this is inside, that is outside, and we're going to keep the living water inside. And yet Zechariah says that, you know, look at that, look at that city, look at those walls. Somehow those walls are going to be breached, but they're going to be breached so that the living water can flow out half of them to the eastern sea, half of them who is this? Who's carrying this living water, right? Half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer and in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. Remember, who's coming to be Messiah, right? They asked him, are you Messiah? Well, who is going to be the king? Who's the king? Yahweh will be king over all the earth. You see, you see he's been telling them, Yes, I am Messiah. But what you don't understand is that Messiah is God. Right? On that day, Yahweh, the Lord, will be one. And his name, one. Why even say that except that to declare that God is one is to acknowledge that he is multiple persons. That God is one 
one being, three persons, and that as this living water flows out, as this king who is God reigns over Israel, over Israel as living waters flowing around the globe, that God is one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is one. And so in John chapter 10, 34 through 36, he says, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? How's this living water going to, to tra- travel around the globe? Isn't it going to be through um, offspring gods? Isn't it going to be through people in whom God dwells, who share the divine nature, and who are going to, because of that, be able to carry this living water around the globe? And so he says, is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods, if you call them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside. I want to stop there for a minute. You know, one thing, when we have a, a tribalistic idea, we create slogans, we we have all of these um these rallying cries, these, these doctrines that everybody is sure is correct and nobody would ever dare question. And yet they are not usually consonant with the entirety of scripture. Usually we'll pick a proof text like Deuteronomy 6, 4. We'll build our whole system on it. And then we'll say the ones who agree with this Shaboleth are in or out, I guess. And the ones who don't are in, uh, you know, and, and, here they are, they had made Deuteronomy 6 for the test, and, and yet the Psalms had said, you are gods. And Jesus is saying, are you setting aside one set of scriptures or one passage so that you can hold on to another? That doesn't seem like very good treatment of scripture, and yet that's what we do, isn't it? That's what people do. But that he's teaching us that we have to expand our concept, our expectation, our paradigm to take in what feels like conflicting, contradictory passages. You know, we could say, well, the scripture contradicts and then choose the passages we like, but who does that, who does that leave as God? If we're the arbiter of which passages get to be incorporated into our belief system, who's God? On the other side, if we take the whole and we say, you know, I don't understand how these fit together, but I'm going to hold them in tension until I do. And we allow our paradigm to stretch until we begin to see things um, in a broader way. Jesus says, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. The wording here is, I think, very intentional. When, we, when he says the Father set him apart, you know, it's not like God was looking around all of these heavenly beings and saying, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, which one of you is going to go? Uh, you know, that he, he is saying he is leveraging the imagery of the Passover, that Jesus is set apart in that he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world and that he has been brought into the house like the Passover lamb. He has been sent into the world to live among us. And so just like Deuteronomy 12, 5 through 6 prescribes, the animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And you may take them, you may set them apart from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them. Bring them into your house. 
until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. And now, uh, and so there's this imagery. Jesus is saying God is, the Father has, has, has singled me out as his lamb. Just as John introduced Jesus in John 1 as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus is the lamb of God. He's the, the one selected of God and then sent into the house, into the world But because he's the Lamb of God, he is the instrument of God's people's liberation from a corrupt society. In in Revelation chapter 11, there's this um, description of the two witnesses and their ministry and, and then their ultimate martyrdom. And so in, John, in Revelation 11, 7 through 8, he says, Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. You see, Jerusalem had become Sodom and Egypt. It had become Sodom in that it was a corrupting society. That people lived there and who conformed to its norms were being corrupted. And that uh, it was Egypt in that it had this oppressive, enslaving effect on the people that were there. And so Jesus comes as the Lamb of God to call his people out of the institutional structures these power structures that are so easily corrupted into something new. There's a guy named Lance Walnow. Um, and uh, he's, uh, I guess he's a mover and shaker in the Christian nationalist movement. And uh, he has had something to say about the approach that Christians should take in the public sphere. He says this, Look at your occupational field and see it as a mountain. He talks about that there are seven mountains in society. There's the political mountain. There's the uh, cultural mountain. There's the educational mountain, uh, and etc. But all of these mountains, he's saying that these are places where when we scale to the top of them, that we will have the influence and we can bring the norms of the kingdom to bear on politics, education, the arts, etc., in human society, even over people who aren't Christians. And so his advice is look at your occupational field and see it as a mountain, what companies and what people are at the top of that mountain. And so he's saying emulate the climbers in your society. Emulate the achievers, those who are ascending. Follow their example. What skills Knowledge and personal characteristics are needed to occupy that position. What would need to exist for you to occupy the top of that mountain? And so he, um, he gives this advice. The only problem with that is, is it is the antithesis of the messianic pattern. That Jesus came not to ascend, but to descend in, in John Um, chapter 3, John says, look, I came to baptize so that Israel would know that um, the Messiah is coming. What was it about baptism that signified the coming of the Messiah? I believe that it is uh, 
a depiction of the messianic pattern. Jesus in the other gospels had said, uh, the one who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the Messiah comes to descend again and again. He says, I'm from above, right? And, and yet he has this expectation that he will once again return, that he will be ascend yet again, as in Daniel 7, where it says there was one like the son of man who was brought into the presence of the ancient of days, that there's this ascension that comes. But Jesus says, who could ascend who could ascend into the very presence of God except the one who first descended? And so the messianic pattern is to descend, not ascend, as Walnau would say. We have to be busy putting ourselves last, taking the place of a servant. That is leadership in the kingdom of God, not trying to expand our influence so that we can use our power to force other people to conform to what we think they should do. That that's a values-based, a virtue-based approach that just doesn't fit the kingdom of God. You know, in First John chapter 2, verses 15 through 18, uh, John is warning the people. And he says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, uh, love for the Father is not in them. Now, uh, you may or may not know that there are four Greek words for the word for translated love in English. Uh, one is eros, which is like passionate love, romantic love, sexual love. Uh, another is storge. It's this uh, family kind of a love uh, that perhaps from a parent to a child kind of a love. Uh, and then there's a phileo, which is this friendship and brotherhood kind of a love, uh, this affection that people have with uh, those that are in their life. <clears throat> and then there's agape, which is this really high form of, of love, one that's almost always reserved for uh, the love of God toward us or God's love within us. Now, when John says, do not love the world or anything in the world, which one of those words, those Greek words, do you suppose is being used there? I was surprised to discover that it's agape. Here's what I think John is telling us. He's telling us that this world can't be saved. And that when we go out to save it, we really relinquish our place, um, our power, our standing in the messianic kingdom. And we trade love for the Father, <clears throat> for love for ourselves, love for a, um, our own causes, our own achievements, and we make ourselves susceptible. So... John says, for everything in the world, he's saying that here's everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, which of those are you going to redeem through your political action committee? These come not from the Father, but from the world. And so uh, I, I think John is cautioning us, and, and I don't think it's for nothing that he goes directly in. He says, the world and its desires pass away. Not just the desires. And we often read verse John um, to as, as caution that we should avoid lust. But he's not just saying the desires pass away, the world itself. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. You want to do something that lasts, right? So why is that? Now, notice that he goes on. 
He says, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists has, have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. So I don't think it's for nothing that he warns against the Antichrist right after telling us not to love this world or the things in the world. I think that is because this tendency to try to leverage our collective influence to fix the behavior or the policies of other people is an anti-Christ approach. You see, Christ means anointed one. It means that he carries the priestly anointing and the king anointing. Okay, now, because he carries both of those, he has ascended to heaven because in heaven he is performing his priestly duty right where he should in the very presence of God. But also in heaven, he has withheld from us our drive, our tribalistic drive to rally around him, to try to force him to enforce godly norms on other people that the beauty of the messianic kingdom is that it is the obedience as paul said it runs on the obedience of faith and only those who have faith must be or can be compelled to obey and that when we attempt to use force political influence power consequences manipulation when we use these kinds of things to achieve what we think are godly ends we are taking on the priestly and kingly anointing for ourselves and we become anti-Christ. And so he says in 1 John 2, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. I don't think people were just saying Jesus is not the Christ. I think that they were denying him and their behavior. And people do that today. When we see Donald Trump as God's agent to execute his plan, his, uh, to bring Christian norms to bear in the American sphere, we really ascribe to him the role of Christ. And whatever his intentions, we, we make him anti-Christ. And as we support that vision, we ourselves become a part of the spirit of Antichrist. And when we do that, as John says, we deny the Father and the Son. That Christian nationalism is neither Christian, isn't Christian. It may be nationalist, but it's certainly not Christian. As a matter of fact, it's anti-Christian. And so God's sheep exit those kinds of earthly enclosures into fruitful fellowship. John 10, 37 through 38. John goes on and says, or Jesus through John says, do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. And so Jesus is, is looking to the evident presence of God in, in his actions as his argument uh, for who and what he should be. And, and he's modeling that for us. In John chapter 9, verses 4 through 5, Jesus says, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. 
Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Here's what's interesting is that Jesus in this is confessing that he had a short period of time to do good, to demonstrate who God is, and that when that time was over, his direct influence would come to an end, his direct work and expression in this planet. And you want to know what causes, I think what drives people toward things like Christian nationalism and tribalism is a desire to to project an influence beyond our death, that people build institutions and other things so that they can know that something will survive them, that the works that they've done will outlive them. And that's unlike Jesus. It's, it's the instinct of those who crucified Jesus as in John 10, 39, it says, again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. ESV renders it this way. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And so just as Jesus had said, no one can um, pull them out of my father's hand. And so this, the hand of God, it expresses his, his power, his ability. And here are these people who are, um, who are stretching out their hand, that they have these divine pretensions and that they would use that what they believe is their collective power to um to bring jesus into line and so they are uh, they're ironically the ones who are trying to make themselves god and so in john 10 uh, 40 through 41a it says then jesus went back across the jordan to the place where john had been baptizing in the early days there he stayed and many people came to him um, back in John 7, Jesus' brothers were like, hey, if you want to really make a difference, you need to go to the capital. You need to do something big. And Jesus had gone to the capital, and it didn't go well. Uh, but Jesus went out into the wilderness, out into the boonies, and there he found a fruitful fellowship. Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days, and there he stayed. Notice that he stays there in, in Jerusalem. He is a wanderer, ironically. But in, in the wilderness, he finds his place, and many people came to him. In Isaiah 5, 4 through 7, God's heart is put on display, his heart for his people and for his city. He's, uh, he says, what more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. And so God is going to to dismantle this political entity. He says, I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. That's the kind of thing that uh, happens when we begin to count on our collective strength and our political identity rather than God. But God's not going to leave Israel like that. In Hosea 2, 14-15, he says, Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards. Where? In the wilderness. And I will make the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, a door of hope. 
that the hardship that Israel will go through will be a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and the creatures that move along the ground, bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land. Now, how could you have a nation without bow or sword or battle? Well, you have it in the wilderness You have it based on faith. You have it based on voluntary participation and the call of God and the voice of the Messiah. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. In uh, Hosea 3, 4 through 5, he says, For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without without sacrifice or sacred stones. And God's going to take away the political and religious trappings without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. There's that theme again, the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Folks, we are in those last days. In John 10, 41b through 42, he says, they said through Though John never performed a sign, and all that John said about this man was true, and in that place many believed in Jesus. Folks, you want to know what fruit is? You want to know what, uh, what your legacy should be? What if it's the same as John the Baptist? John, who lived in obscurity, who uh, passed on, whose whole purpose was to point to Jesus, and yet through Jesus, his legacy lives on, and we talk about him today. I, I, I think that this there's a great irony to the Christian nationalist um, rallying cry. Uh, They use the word stand a lot. That uh, Family Research Council calls people to stand. And yet that their call is is the very antithesis of, of what it what it purports to be that in that call to stand is a call to give up ground. It is a call to say, you need to defend something. You need to protect something. And yet those who stand, they remain in their victory. They confess that they cannot be defeated. They cannot be pushed back, that there is nothing to regain or to defend, but that they have what they need because God has given it. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You see, if we proclaim the gospel, if we declare who he is, it doesn't matter what we see happening. And I think so many times it's easy to get people to rally around causes because they want to see results. And the drive to see results is a relinquishing of our place. It is a failure to stand that we must trust that While people protect their perimeter, God's sheep exit earthly enclosures into fruitful fellowship. 